Welcome to Uncontained, episode 150. I'm your host, Aaron Static Render, and on the show today, I speak with screenwriter and producer of some of the shows that, you know, in my opinion, helped shape television, at least as I was growing up. Uh, Remington Steel, Star Trek, MacGyver, and Quantum Leap. And uh, also still at it now with one of the most popular movies with the most streams on Netflix, starring Vanessa Hutchins, The Princess Switch. And today I get to talk to Robin Bernheim. And uh, we talk about The Princess Switch, some stories that go on behind the scenes there. And did you know that they shot movies for Christmas in the summer when it's 90 degrees outside? People wearing jackets trying to act cold? Well, we talk about that a little bit in the show. Also, we take a trip down memory lane talking about some of those stories from behind the scenes when she was writing on MacGyver and Quantum Leap and even an encounter she had with William Shatner. So that's all in this interview, along with uh, talking about upcoming work she has featuring a series of on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries called Mystery 101 that she wrote with New York Times best-selling author Lee Goldberg. So I have a great interview lined up for you right here. And all I ask of you is that you share it with a friend. Go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, add me at Uncontained Pod, and also just share share the post with a friend somebody who you think might enjoy listening to this episode after all word of mouth is the best advertising so i won't keep you waiting any longer it's time to plug in those earbuds this is how robin bernheim lives uncontained how are you doing today robin it's raining in los angeles but that's great yeah it's raining up here in the bay area as well Except we don't get rain, so it's like we should be outside celebrating. Recently, Aaron, it's just been, you know, the uh, cliche of Southern California sun all the time, but we've just had like a week of rain, and so we love it. And there's snow in the mountains, and um, it feels like winter here, and we probably only have it like for a, a week a year, but we're enjoying it, and it's so good for the, the trees and the ground and all of that stuff. That's true. That's true. And like the winter time and everything looking snow up in the mountain, that's actually a good segue kind of into what you do, at least in some aspect of it, because you are a writer slash producer. And a lot of what you have written, at least recently, has been uh, on the Hallmark Network. So that just made me think of Christmas movies. Oh, yes. I, I tease that I, I didn't start out this way, but recently have become, it seems, the, the queen of Christmas. <laughs> um, I did uh, a movie for Hallmark Movies and Mysteries with James Brolin um, a year or so ago. I guess it's two years now. And um, it was called I'll Be Home for Christmas. And then that sort of launched me into doing other Christmas movies and branched out to Netflix and did... Christmas Prince, I produced it for NPCA, which is the production company that produced the movie, and then um, wrote with uh, a writing partner 
Princess Switch, which was originally Christmas Princess Switch. Really? And then before that, I was doing the holiday movies for the series on Hallmark called Wind Calls the Heart. So, yes, I'm big into winter, even though it doesn't snow here. <laughs> okay. All right. Have you ever lived around snow? I'm just curious if there's like a love for snow in your past, or is it just that you haven't been around snow and it seems kind of magical to you? Oh, it's all very magical and fictional. I am truly a, a California native, and I grew up in Los Angeles, and then I went to college at Stanford University in the Bay Area, and then back to Los Angeles for my graduate degree. So, no, it's all very magical and wonderful and all made up. And I guess that's perfect for show business because most of the time when we're shooting Christmas movies, ironically, because of when, you know, we want to release them at Christmas, we're shooting them in the middle of the summer. So it's 90 degrees out and we're putting fake snow on the ground and everybody's dying of the heat in the heavy winter coats. <laughs> you know, being from the Midwest originally and experiencing snow through like cold winters, I, I was always like, if it snowed when it was 90 degrees out, I think that would be amazing. So maybe, you know, that's the best way to do it. Cold, icy water falling from the sky on a 90 degree day. Sounds refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was uh, a little bit tricky with the actors. And, and in Princess Switch, which is the movie that's on Netflix right now, I mean, it was so hot that like, you know, um, we, we had to keep them in jackets, we had to keep the actors in jackets, and everybody was so eager to peel off the jackets. I know we got some comments on Twitter that Vanessa Hudgens didn't look like she was truly bundled up for a Chicago winter with her scarf and her hat and her jacket, and they weren't heavy enough. But believe me, it was roasting because she was in, we shot in Romania in, the, in like May, and it was 90 degrees out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I imagine that has to be tough, like pretending like you're cold when you're really just about to be sweating. Ah, the magic of TV and the magic of films. And, you know, we get this is what they pay the actors to do. So, you know, that's um, it's kind of the fun of what we do. I, I think that something like you know, pretending that it's winter during the summer is tough. But then again, you know, we shoot out of order. You know, we, we board these shows and we shoot them out of order. So, you know, when you think the challenges of of staying in character and having to shoot like your last scene first and your first scene last and the middle scenes, God knows when, you know, it's uh, th these are all part of the challenges for, um, you know, film actors as opposed to theater actors, you know, that it's just uh, makes it just a slightly different animal. Yeah. So yeah, theater, obviously you're going to act all the way through. Now, why don't they shoot movies more linearly from start to finish? Yeah, it's a production concern. It's a matter of uh, economy of time. You know, we have a limited amount of time to shoot a movie or a television show. And so what we do is we call it, we board the show and we take all the scenes in one location, shoot them all, you know, together so that um, we're not going, moving the company and, and going from one location to another. It's just a matter of economy of time and money to shoot all the scenes in a given location at a particular amount of time. Then you factor in actor availability um, and day out of days. So, you know, there's, 
you don't want to carry an actor over too many days, so you board all of his or her days together. Um, and then sometimes the challenge of that, and we had a huge ensemble cast uh, for When Calls the Heart, which is the Western uh, town show on Hallmark, and it's still on. You know, huge challenge because we had actors who had other commitments, like Lori Lachlan also does a show for Netflix called Fuller House while she's doing When Calls the Heart. So we have to board around Lori's availability. So it okay. becomes this Chinese puzzle yeah, I'm trying to fit it all together. It's it's quite challenging. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. Yeah, especially with so many people doing different things and yeah, once you're on one Netflix show, it seems like you're on like all of them. I know they uh use a lot of the same actors in different shows. Yeah, there's certainly a, a lot of like cross-pollination and cross-promotion. It it helps one show and if they find that they have a star that people like, it helps that. But, um, yeah, you know, you become a family on a set, so you're always trying to work it so you don't have to, because that's the other thing. If the person's not available, you have to start pulling them out of scenes, and then that gets complicated from a story and a writing standpoint, and we don't like to do that when we don't have to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I want to come back and talk to you about Princess Switch and another show you have coming up, Mystery 101. But first, I read about how you kind of got that aha moment that you're like, I want to go this way with my career. But could you share that story? Because it it's really seems like it's pretty cool. You're talking about like how I became a writer. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Yes, matter of fact, Tom Nolan got a big kick out of that when he wrote the article for Written by. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was something because I, I I you know I got a graduate degree. I, I got an MBA from UCLA, and I was working for Atari in Silicon Valley um, as a manager for their computer camps, and I lived on airplanes because. Um, you know, our offices were in Sunnyvale, but the camp offices were in New York, and the camps were all over the country. So I was always on an airplane, and I was on uh, the first 767 that was traveling transcontinental back from New York to uh, Los Angeles. And, of course, I, I I think I was always a writer by heart, and I, I, I um, majored in English, you know, as an undergrad in communications. And um, I'm on this airplane, and <laughs> the pilot comes on and says, we have a fire in the engine. There's a light on it says there's a fire in the engine. And so we're going to make an emergency landing in Denver. Wow. And it's just one of those surreal moments, Aaron, where you just don't think that this could ever happen to you. You can't really comprehend this could be the end of your life. And I even have a visual memory of what I was wearing that day. That's how <laughs> seared it is in my wow, memory. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just thought that if I survived and if it was, you know, was going to happen and, and I was going to be given a chance and to do something, you know, beyond what I was doing, was I doing the right thing? If my life was over in that moment, was I doing the right thing with my life? And it was, you know, emphatically, no, this isn't what I want to do with my life. And so we literally landed. There were ambulance, fire truck, ambulance, fire truck lining the um, the runway when we landed. Again, I can I can see it. I can see it was so it was so visceral. Yeah, and then the pilot decided, oh, it, the, the problem was with the light. We're going to try to take off again, and he tried to take off again, and he aborted the takeoff and came right down, which is scary as as all get out. And um, 
you know, I, <laughs> and then they said they were going to fix the plane and we could get back on the same plane. And I refused to do it. I, I bought a ticket on a different airline and flew home on some little unknown airline. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's like, okay, uh, I gave you two chances. Both times we landed. I'm not going to gamble with a third time on that plane, you know? And That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, no, thank you. No, I'm going home. I'll take my little, little local airline where you get at that time, like a box lunch. That's fine. And I'll just <laughs> go, get home. And I did. And then I quit within a week. I, I quit. And, um, you know, that, that was my moment of epiphany. And, and then there were other things happening in my life. And, um, I had a friend, Stephanie Zimbalist, who was on a show, Remington Steel. Actually, she wasn't on it yet. She was just thinking of whether she was going to take the show or not. And she decided to do it. And I had quit and I was writing and she said, let's write an episode of Remington Steel together. And we did. We just had a blast. We just did it for fun. And we turned it in. And Michael Gleason, who created the show and was running the show as the executive producer, said, (laughs) I... I I won't shoot this episode because we wrote an episode which was the twin episode where there was an evil double for Stephanie's character. <laughs> and when you think about it, that we, we were so young and we were so naive. I mean, the star of the show is gonna is gonna write an episode. If you're gonna double anyone, you got to double you know write a, a bigger part for your co-star, right? Who was Pierce Brosnan at the time. And um, so he said. I'm not going to produce this one, but based on, on what I see on paper, I will give you guys a chance to write an episode. So, and again, we're talking about, this was like 1982 or 83 or something. So there were very few women actually writing at that time. We were one of the very few women writers and wow. they didn't take us seriously at all. No. And they, they didn't even like slot our script to be shot. They figured they were just going to have to burn it. And then we turned it in. And they shot it third. It was the third episode up. Oh, and cool. um, it was, yeah, it was about a the recipe for a chocolate chip cookie that had no calories. And it was, uh, Stephanie will describe it as, as, it was very, it was silly. We actually had a pie fight in it. We had to take it out. It turned into something else because the network felt it was too silly. And two weeks later on Moonlighting, which was the show that uh, Glenn Gordon Karen, who worked on Remington, created after after Remington. Um, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard, right? Sybil Shepard. And there was a pie fight on Moonlighting just like two weeks after ours. So, you know, it wasn't too silly for for uh, for Moonlighting, but it was too silly for NBC at the time. And they they took it out. But that was my um that was my journey. And then based on that and that script, I, I wrote other stuff and, um, you know, God, I it just, it hasn't stopped. I, I've just been very lucky. I've been knock on wood, very blessed to go yeah. from that show to yeah another show to another show. I think the second show I did, I got an assignment on a show called crazy, like a Fox. And when you think of the stars, it was, um, John Rubenstein, excuse me, and uh, Jack Warden, you know, who are just legends. And they had a television show at the time, so I did that. And then I did uh, the first MacGyver, you know, before MacGyver Now, there was MacGyver with Richard Dean Anderson. Yeah, yeah. I remember that from back in the day. I always thought my dad was MacGyver. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did he have one of those pocket knives? He had a pocket knife, a roll of duct tape, and uh, he even fixed the bumper on my car once with a two by four. So, you know, he, he was definitely resourceful. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, that's just my dad on TV. It's like. <laughs> I think we had the same dad. You know? <laughs> Could be. I, I know. I, I, I remember, like, calling my dad when I'd get stumped for some of those gimmicks to just pick his brain about that kind of stuff. Dad, how can you make a bomb out of a paperclip, a piece of chewing gum, and a piece of aluminum foil? Right, or a clock out of a potato. I mean, yeah. we had a technical manual to sort of help us with that stuff. But yeah, it was it was always fun. Did you like try to do some research to see if there was a way that that would work to do whatever MacGyver had to come up with for that show? Oh, yes. There was always like some basis in science, even though it might not have worked. I remember something in the episode I did. I did the premiere of the second season. It was called The Human Factor. And it had to do with like reflecting a beam with a mirror so that you could reflect it back and, and he could get through something that, that was like, you know, it was like a security beam and there was a way to break the beam, not break the beam by using the mirror to reflect back to the eye. Okay. So technically in theory it, it would work, but I wouldn't want to like risk it because you might get blasted with death lasers, but you know. <laughs> Got to watch out for those death lasers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Same with Star Trek. We had, uh, we had a uh, a consultant, a technical consultant, a a Andre Bormanis, who is on Orville right now. And he was the guy that we would call to say, Andre, we need something to, you know, we, we need we need some something to slow down the enterprise. What what do you suggest? And then he'd come up with some science for it. So it was very handy to have. Yes, we had a whole made-up class of drugs that I can't remember now, but you, you knew what made-up class of drugs to use, you know, to, to wake people up and dull <laughs> the pain and all this. Oh, and then we, got, we also were issued a schematic, a book of the Enterprise. We had the whole layout of the Enterprise. Oh, cool. Star Trek, I will admit, that was, like, one show that I couldn't get into as a kid. Like, I liked the Star Wars and stuff, but it it was just the environment. Like, it was so sterile, it kind of reminded me of a doctor's office. And as a kid, I was in and out of the doctor quite a bit. You know, I can go back and watch some of the Star Trek now, but as a kid, I just, like, I don't want to go to the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, again, for those of us that were into it, and you're younger than me, if you remember the original one, if you saw the original Star Trek on rerun, that one was more colorful and more messy, and Captain Kirk was more impulsive and uh, would do things that were very human. You grew up on Next Gen, right? I grew up on Next Generation, yes. I didn't get William Shatner's version of Captain Kirk. So maybe maybe if I would have seen that growing up, yeah, I think there was still some movies going on with him in it like when I was little. But... Uh -huh. Well, that was much more colorful. And then I did a... He, of course... I did Next Gen, and then they hired me to do Voyager, which is the one with the female captain, Kate Mulgrew. Yeah. Um, but I did, I did do a show called Tech War with William Shatner. And I remember when I was brought on to meet him because he had a sign off on me. And again, these were the days where there were very few women, especially in action, adventure, and sci-fi. 
And he wasn't sure a woman could write, you know, action-adventure sci-fi. And I remember being interviewed by him and sitting across from his desk in his office at Universal. And he asked me a question, and he looked up at me. And, of course, he was a lot older than when he was Captain Kirk. But, you know, the eyes don't age. And it was Captain Kirk looking at me. And I freaked out. I forgot the question. (laughs) (laughs) I I was so lame in that interview. I just was, because it was Captain Kirk. I was being interviewed by the Captain Kirk. So um, that was really kind of kind of cool. Yeah, I bet. And didn't like if I was in a room with him, I'd find myself starting to talk like him accidentally and not even thinking about it. People like, "Well, I was going to do this and but I tend to do that pick up people's vocal patterns as I'm talking to them sometimes." I think we all do to some extent. We do. <laughs> I'm probably sounding like a little Canadian. I spent too much too many years on the Canadian show and, and you know how it's a Canadian thing where you inflect at the end of a sentence and you, when it, even it's not a question. And I know I catch myself <laughs> doing that too. I, I guess I never no- realized that about uh, Canadian talk that they do kind of like end with uh, going up at the end. So hmm, interesting. They do. And I've done a, a fair amount of shows in Canada, you know, from, from the start, well, tech war, there was one before that called beyond reality when, you know, Vancouver was the next Hollywood and we were just learning how to, you know, partner with a, with a foreign partner. And, and that was interesting. One of, one of the best stories I heard, it wasn't on a show I did was the script said, um, we're waiting for the dust to settle. And that's an American colloquialism. And when they went to the production meeting, the Canadian crew was confused and wanted to know, well, how are we going to visualize dust settling? You know? So we had, we had some translation <laughs> problems at the beginning. I, oh, and there was another one on the show I did, Beyond Reality, where um, the the American script called for an alley to be trashed. Yeah. So the production company trashed the alley, and then lunch was called, and everybody went to lunch. And then at lunch, the Canadian trash collectors had come through, you know, it was trash day, and they cleaned out the alley. <laughs> So you had to trash it all over again. That's right. They had to retrash the alley. <laughs> so those are my good Canadian stories. They didn't happen to me. They're all hearsay. So who knows? That's all right. That's all right. Uh, they're good stories to share. They're good stories to share. So I was looking through your IMDb, and there was a couple other shows that caught my eye looking through that I enjoyed watching kind of as a kid or as an early teen. Uh, Quantum Leap and uh renegade with lorenzo lamas but those those were two that just like that brought me back are there any uh, great stories that you have from like either quantum leap or renegades you know i haven't thought of it in a while maybe if i just sort of blab about them, something is i'll say something interesting i don't know but quantum leap i love the show you know it was created by Don Belisario, who's brilliant. He created Magnum with Glenn Larson um, and um, among other things, Airwolf and a bazillion other things that I don't remember. And he taught me a lot. Um, And it just was a wonderful show. It was about putting right what once went wrong, um, you know, doing good in the world. And, and that was wonderful, you know, to be associated with a show like that. And Scott Bakula was a delight to work with. There was never anybody who was so polite and 
almost very much the Sam Beckett character that he portrayed at that time. Really? Yeah, he would stick around after, you know, they'd call cut, and he'd put, I remember once he was putting the gaffer's tape, you know, for the actors to hit their marks. I mean, <laughs> he, he just was delightful. And and the funniest episodes, of course, we did were when we put him in drag. And, and I wrote the Dr. Ruth episode where he played Dr. Ruth, the sex expert. Oh, so yeah. um, that was a particularly interesting exercise, you know, with the network censors. When you think of what you can say on television now, we couldn't say any of it. So um, there was some reference to, you know, slang for uh, male genitalia. And I remember <laughs> I sent a memo because they kept bouncing anything I wanted to refer to it as. And so I literally had a memo where I listed 25 colloquialisms for male parts. <laughs> asked, them, <laughs> asked, asked NBC, what would you like me to say? And it became a bit in the show because there's a, a, a bit with Dean Stockwell where he gets flustered with Dr. Ruth and she says, you're supposed to use the proper terms. And he goes through a whole list for women's breasts where he lists every colloquialism in the book for it. <laughs> and I remember being on stage that day and watching Dean do it. And I mean, Dean was a consummate actor. I mean, he knew his lines cold, and he just did them, and he did that whole speech flawlessly. It was like one take, and he was done, and he was out, and again, just delightful to uh, to work with someone like that. Oh, and Brooke Shields uh, did an ep- the first episode I wrote, and she was wonderful, and we stranded her on an island with <laughs> Sam's character, and uh, we shot that the water scenes in the tank on the back of the universal lot. So that was particularly challenging because the sun was literally fading her dress and the chlorine in the water was fading the dress. Wow. And that again becomes a continuity issue because we're shooting out of sequence. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that, that was great fun. And, uh, it was just a great show. I mean, we worked with some wonderful people on that show and, I truly love doing it. I I, I actually wrote the Elvis episode, too. And so we had one of Elvis's friends, the son. No, Red Red West was an advisor on that show. Just loved him. And I think his son was in the episode. We'd have to go back and look. And my niece was in that episode, too. Oh, cool. So that was particularly fun. Yeah, I always liked watching Quantum Leap back in the day. I thought it was cool how, like, he would still see himself in his reflection, but everybody else saw him as as a woman or as a man or whatever character it was. Whatever it was, yeah. It's it just a brilliant, uh, brilliant construct that was Don Belisario's. Just a brilliant idea that allowed Scott as the actor to play all these different roles, and I believe he won a Golden Globe for it. Nice, nice. That had to be a show that never really got boring because it changed all the time. Yes, and so therefore it was particularly challenging from a production standpoint because there were really no standing sets. There was the waiting room when he switched places with whoever it was that he was switching with. They went to a waiting room in the future. That was like the only standing set. Everything else had to be built uh, every week, and it was period. So... Every week it was a different period, too. So we were looking for cars, and we were building costumes, and um, just 
just wonderful people who worked on that show, wonderful art directors, wonderful costume designers, just terrific, uh, terrific show. I, I wish they, you know, in a sense, I was just about to say, I wish they would do it again. Maybe it's good that they haven't because then the original lives on. But, um, yeah, I, I would love to do that show again. That, yeah. It just was a great concept. I could see that as one that they try to reboot, like they're doing to MacGyver. And uh, and they, like, do, like, a reboot of the A-Team, too. And I, I don't know. They they just they just remake stuff now a lot of times. But it's cool when something new comes out, you know? Yeah, I think there's, you know, because we have this proliferation in our business now of all these different platforms, um, any IP has value and an IP is an intellectual property and it could be a book or it could be a television show from a long time ago or it could be a movie because everybody's looking for product. Um, and I know they tried with Quantum. They wanted to do his daughter. We set up in an episode where I think he he had a daughter or he got a girl pregnant. Oh God, how scandalous. But I think he did. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so... Sam had a daughter, and we wanted to do. She goes back to try to to uh, find him, and I shouldn't say we. I wasn't associated with it, but I heard that they they had tried, but never quite found the right formula. But okay. yes, television and streaming—it's just a big monster that's gobbling up product now. So so many things have gotten redone. It's amazing. It is. It hits that nostalgic vibe in people, though, and like pulls on that screen. Like, oh, I remember this from when I was a kid, or yeah, my dad used to watch this. I, I used to think my dad was MacGyver. You know, all that stuff. Uh, it all comes back when you see the new stuff. Oh yeah. Even though I admit I have not seen the new MacGyver yet. I think I I watched one of them, and I think it's fun. And. The new guy, whose name I don't know, um, <laughs> is really adorable. I mean, he's really adorable. And when I go back and I watch the old ones that I've done, you know, we're so spoiled now by technology and how beautiful the images are and all the special effects. And so I look back at what I've done in the past and I go, ooh, that looks pretty lame. But at the time, it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, like with the special effects from back in the days, a lot can change. But oh, like, yeah. how do you feel when you see like, say a remake of MacGyver out there do you have a little like part of you is like yeah I wrote this better or uh you're welcome for the ideas <laughs> um you know it's funny you said that I you know I don't generally watch the shows that I wrote on I don't know why I guess maybe if they didn't hire me I'm I'm not watching them um <laughs> I did see Something. I saw something. It was that weird feeling, and I don't even know what show it was. It was like a direct ripoff of a scene that I wrote for, for Quantum Leap in the in the Elvis episode, and I went, oh, somebody saw my episode, and they basically just ripped off the scene. But, you know, I... Yes and no. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. It's hard to have an original idea these days with so much out there. And I'm sure people look at my stuff and say, well, is that really original? You know, so... Who knows? I hear you. I hear you. Who you know? They're they're out doing something, creating something. So you know that's that's cool right there in its own. Not here yeah. to talk talk trash on anybody. You know that's not my thing. Now let's move back to present times. Now that we took that trip down like 
I'm trying to think of a word, but I can't think of it. We'll say down memory lane yeah, for right of now. Memory lane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was a fun trip. It I was. It. It, I, I did too. It was cool talking to somebody who was actually involved writing TV shows and getting some stories from behind the scenes. Now, as you said, you've kind of become the Christmas queen, uh, like Hallmark, correct? Uh, well, more, I mean, I'm not writing as much for Hallmark now. That was, you know, like a year ago. Because, you know, there's a lead time with stuff that you do. So the Christmas stuff I'm doing now is for Netflix. Okay. And the sort of the faith and family stuff, I I have a pilot script that's with a company called Awesomeness, which is a part of Viacom. And we're not sure where that will go, you know, or if it will go. As writers, we, we write a lot that, that never sees the light of day, but um, I'm hopeful for that. It's, a, it's got an angel in it, and it's written for a younger audience. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but Hallmark, Hallmark, I did three years of a series. I did One Calls the Heart, and then I did... Two movies, yes, two, with James Brolin, who was just wonderful to work with. And um, and then I have coming up, which maybe is what you're thinking of, something called Mystery 101 on Hallmark Movies and Mystery. That is what I was so, leading uh, into. I was gonna I was gonna gonna segue into that from here, but here we are. Uh, Mystery 101. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, we got there anyway. Yes, we did. We did. <laughs> it was a fun drive. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery 101. Gosh, let's see. How long ago? I think it was two years ago. It was two years ago. I went, I was I was having lunch with a friend, Lee Goldberg. Lee Goldberg is a, a New York Times bestselling mystery writer. Okay. And he too got got started on some of the mystery shows that I did. And he worked with Michael Gleason, who created Remington Steel. And then he went on to uh, co-author books with Janet Ivanovich, uh, who wrote the Fox and O'Hare bestselling books. So I was talking to Lee and I said, I've got a couple of ideas for a, a mystery over at Hallmark. And I was busy with, with a lot of other projects. I think Princess Switch was one of them at the time. And I said, do you want to do this one with me? And he said, sure. And so how lucky was I that he had the time? And so we pitched two ideas. And the one that came back, it took like eight months, but they came back to us. We were shocked. And we wow. got a call, like we pitched February, and we got a call like in November saying they want to buy it and they want to go ahead with it. So that was kind of thrilling. <laughs> and um, so then, yeah, we, we spent some time breaking a story and then going through the story process with Hallmark. And, um, and it was just sort of there. They, they took their time. I was writing the pilot for Awesomeness at the time. And I, what else was I doing last year? Oh, well, yeah, Princess Switch went into production. So I was doing production rewrites on that and doing another thing for for hallmark called wedding march with jack wagner okay and so then this came up and and we wrote it and and then it, it took all year and i was doing all those other things and we just sort of were putting this on the back burner and putting it on the back burner and then in october they called and they said you know what we want to get this shot before the end of the year oh wow So we sort of jumped into high gear and 
and finished it and then they shot it right away and my goodness it's on like in two weeks i think it's on january 27th yeah so i'll make yeah so you will definitely have to check this and this is on will this just be on the hallmark channel or is it on a like separate hallmark is it hallmark movies and mysteries yeah it's on hallmark movies and mysteries they have an entire channel that's dedicated to mysteries and random movies that they don't put on the main network, but they make them for this other network. So yeah, it's Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, which not every cable subscriber gets. So maybe not all your listeners are going to be able to see this one, but they can watch Princess Switch because it's still on Netflix. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. Let's let's talk about let's talk about Princess Switch. We've mentioned it quite a few times in the episode already, and I was just making people wait just a little bit to hear about it. And uh, it stars uh, Vanessa Hudgens. Yeah, I actually watched the movie with my girlfriend before I even knew this interview was going to happen. And I, I'll put my I'll put my man card aside and say I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you may you may not be the prime demographic for it, Aaron, but yeah, the numbers which I can't disclose are huge on Netflix. The amount of people who've watched it from the beginning all the way to the end because Netflix knows they know these things and. Um, not even counting the people that have watched it like 12 times. Um, the number is, is really quite high of people who have watched it around the world from oh, beginning wow. to end per account. And then per account, you double that number because you figure at least two people are watching it. But we don't have to talk about Princess Switch. My Star Trek is on Netflix. When Calls the Heart is on Netflix. So we can talk about other ones that people can watch. It's a, it's all right. We we can talk about whatever you want. So Princess Switch for somebody who hasn't seen it, like what would be your your pitch on Princess Switch? What would be your synopsis of the movie? Well, it's sort of a royal version of Prince and the Pauper because that's the way I I actually pitched it. Uh, Brad Cravoy runs when uh, runs the production company MPCA Motion Picture Corporation of America, and I had done three years of of um, When Calls the Heart for him. And we went to lunch and he said, you know, these royal movies, especially if they're set at Christmas, they're really, you know, they're really good to sell. They're, they're very popular. People really like them and we want to do some over at Netflix. So is there a concept for some sort of royal movie? And of course, I, I hadn't thought it, I hadn't, thought of it at all and you know you get up you go to the bathroom you wash your hands you come back and then I just said to him well what about you know a female version of Prince and the Pauper and we do you know we do that at Christmas he said great done go write it and so I went back to my office and I had wanted to give my assistant a shot at writing and I said Megan would you like to write this one with me and she was getting married that year oh wow and she said hell yes (laughs) (laughs) and and so it became her first paid writing assignment and it's just one of those charmed things so yeah if you if you look at how it was developed that's probably the best pitch i mean it's a high concept show that's a female version of prince and the pauper and they the two women switch places a commoner becomes royalty and the royalty becomes commoner and of course, because it's a romance, they each fall in love with the other, with the guy in, in the other one's life. They just gotta. And because it's, yeah, they have to. It's a happy ending, so it all works out at the end. 
And uh, Vanessa Hudgens plays both uh, characters in this, the, the princess and the baker from Chicago. Yes, she does. And she's brilliant. And she was always in the back of my mind. She was on the short list because I am a big musical fan, which shouldn't probably surprise you given I like all this fantasy stuff. And so I had seen her in Greece live on television and she played Rizzo, which is so different from what she did in high school musical. And I just thought, well, she can really act. And this is going to be a very tough part. It's not two parts. It's actually four parts because you've got the princess and the commoner. And then you have the commoner playing the princess and the princess playing the commoner. Yeah. And it turns out, yeah, that she actually got that, and she had four different color highlighters and highlighted um, her her lines in in the different colors to keep straight who she was playing. So, I I think we got really lucky. Yeah, together. that's I think awesome. Fantastic. The yeah. way you described yeah. that actually reminded me of uh, something I heard about uh, Mel Blanc. You know, the voice for the Looney Tunes. Right. Like he'd do. Right, right. Like when there was an argument between characters, or if like a character in person, like during uh, the rabbit season and duck se- season bit. You know, he'd do Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Then he'd do Daffy Duck doing Bugs Bunny and Bugs Bunny doing Daffy Duck. Four different voices, four different roles, <laughs> and. And that's just what that brought me back to. And that, that that's pretty impressive right there. That's so cool. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, of course. And, and that's what she had to do. And she was smart enough to get that and to make choices like that. So, yeah, I, I think it's fun. I, I know that it was, you know, as, as a writer, it was like trying to keep straight who knew what. I mean, I know it comes <laughs> off as a bit of fluff, but you should you should just like try to logic yourself through something like that. So you look at Kevin's perspective, who's the the baker, her sous chef. What does he know, and what does he think is happening? And you can't you you've got to look at each scene from each character's point of view. Otherwise, you make assumptions, and then your script doesn't make sense. So it was it was a a very you know there's a lot of contrivance to a script like that. So it's it's hard to keep it all straight. Yeah, I was and when going into it, I was like, "How is she going to pass off being a baker when she doesn't know how to cook as a princess?" Um, that was like what was going through my mind, like things like that. And then, like, she ended up, you know, having an excuse for one thing or another to do, so <laughs> to make it all work out. You know, yeah, it's it's the old suspension of disbelief, and you need a lot of it in the high concept movies and in the fantasy movies. But then, given that I come from a world of starships and prairie um to me suspension of disbelief is coin of the realm you know it and if you can suspend disbelief you can enjoy the movie if you can't it's probably not your cup of tea <laughs> i wasn't saying like how is she gonna do i was like thinking how the character was gonna pull it off make him believe without him being like okay i thought you knew how to cook what's the deal here she she did a good job of playing it off that's good writing to make that uh work out right there well you know it it was fun. we had certain moments you know where she goofed and then she had excuses but i have to tell you the one of the funniest notes i got because writers 
just our life is we don't write, we rewrite for a living, right? Because yeah. everybody has an idea or a comment or a thought, and then production has their notes, what they can do and what they can't do. But one of the funniest calls I ever got was from Brad, who owns the production company, who calls and she, he said to me, Robin, you know, we got to make sure, you know, I, I, I don't think that, that Vanessa's in enough. We need more scenes with Vanessa. I went, Brad, you're forgetting she's playing both roles. <laughs> he wanted more more with the princess he wasn't even thinking that it was her playing the other role too so <laughs> if you watch the movie our page count our number of minutes on screen probably we have more of her playing the royal because that's where the fantasy is but it's actually the same actress and she's on screen almost from the beginning to the end but she's playing two different parts yeah, yeah, that 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 is funny though. <laughs> She's actually both of them, and there was a, like that beat, and then he went, "Oh yeah." <laughs> All right, never <laughs> mind that statement. I, mean, I, I, I take that yeah, back. No, no, but I, I knew, yeah, what he wanted was more of the royal and the and the fantasy and the and so we put it in, and and actually it is. It's 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 great fun watching her, you know, play the royal part because that's more of a stretch and there's more almost Lucille Ball to it and she has some of physicality falling off the horse and stretching out the pants and that the riding pants and and that was great fun I should probably get moving to my uh, my questions here so I don't keep you all night it's been really fun talking um, about the work that you've been in but this part of the show is dedicated to kind of helping people who are looking to get into the entertainment industry or take that next step with their career, you know, kind of help them out a little bit. So the first question is very basic. It's what advice do you have for people who are looking to get, get started or take that next step in your specific industry and like writing and producing? Yeah. If you want to be a writer, I can't tell you, Aaron, how many times I go to, you know, events or conventions, um, and people say they want to be writers, but they haven't written anything. So as, as lame as it sounds, the first thing you have to do is you've got to write. You know, you've got to, the old expression, put pen to paper, or these days, put your fingers on the keyboard, and you've got to start writing. You need a sample. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. And then okay. the second thing, in terms of, of, of just getting into the business, if you want to do what I do, have done, which is I've been lucky enough to work for the A-team, you really need to be in Los Angeles or probably, possibly, probably New York. I think there's more business there. There's business in Canada, too. So I don't know if your podcast reaches the Canadian audience. Um, I have a few listeners up there. And I don't know how, how that works. So that would be something, you know, I'd have to defer to. But if you're in America and you're an American writer or you want to be in the business, come to Los Angeles. It's You, you really got to be here, and that's how you network and you know people. And I happen to know Stephanie Zimbalist, who was a longtime friend, and she was an actress who got a role in the show, and she helped me get in, in the, my first door. So that's the other uh, piece to it, is you go through your roster of people that you know, um, and think of everybody and who do they know and do they know and, and then just go talk to everybody you can just you know anyone who will be willing to have a cup of coffee with you you, you go talk to them and meet them and you never know what kind of opportunities there are out there 
And I, and I guess I should say when I started, again, it was a different world and it was a very sexist world. And I never started as an assistant or as what was referred to as a secretary. And it's a good thing because I was a lousy typist <laughs> and I still don't know how to make coffee. So it wouldn't have worked for me then. But the world has like really changed and entry-level positions in writing so often are generated through the writer's office. So whereas way back when, it wouldn't have been smart to be an assistant or a secretary. Nowadays, it's a great way to get in because you learn the show that you're working on and you're there and you sit in the writer's room and you see how it's done and how stories are broken and you get a sense of the deadlines. So that's my advice. I, sort of a long-winded multi-part answer, but, <laughs> but hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> No, no, that's awesome. A lot of lot of information there. That's great advice. Uh, the only one question on that I have is, like, say somebody does want to become an assistant to get their foot inside the door. Like, what would be the best way to go about uh, getting a, getting one of those uh, assistant positions? Well, I understand that there are, uh, like, boards online, you know, that I bet you you can Google assistant positions, I, I think. There are networks that I know that my assistant is part of. I know she's part of a Facebook group, too, uh, um, of people who are assistants and starting out in a business. So, again, the answer's changed since, like, I, I started. Definitely, I would look online to networking groups and check out Facebook and and job listings. Again, I think if you can even get in proximity, if you can get a studio job and you're on the lot, you can find out about assistance jobs. In, and then there's the whole realm of development. I mean, not necessarily for people who want to write, but are interested in, in shaping stories. You know, there are development jobs at the studios and those are always good to look into. And if you want to be a writer, you want to learn the software. You want to learn probably final draft um, and be fluent with it. Okay. So you can do like screenplay script uh, format. Yes. Yes. You want to be able to write in that format and you want to be able to, to, you know, make the changes when the, when the writers need to reformat stuff and put out production pages. So that's the tool of our, of the writing trade is, is either final draft or movie magic screenwriter. Um, I use both, okay. but um, I think final draft is used more. All right, cool, cool. That that is a lot of great advice right there. Now, this question, I don't know how well it will relate to you since you're typically kind of behind the scenes for the most part writing or producing. What do you do to promote yourself, whether it's promoting work that you're working on or um or you know, promoting some promoting a screenplay that you have? Well, I have both a, an agent and a manager. And that's how I'm represented, and they're responsible for getting my work out. And I, they are, they are at different companies, and I pay them, you know, separately. And um, they're responsible for covering the town. And it's a tough town to cover now, Aaron, because there are so many outlets and so many platforms. Um, it's much more scattered than it used to be, and. I think part of the problem is that 
you can get work, but it isn't necessarily paying what it used to. You know, there's a whole new category under union work called uh, new media, and you just don't get paid what you used to get paid to, say, be a story editor or um, a staff writer. But it's okay. something, and it's a, it's at least a place to start. But yeah, those of us who write, you know, and then, so then your question would then, then be, you know, how do you get the agent and the manager? And again, it's connections. It's who, you know, it's whether you have nice friends who go, yeah, yeah, I'm represented and I'll send your script over. I do that for people, you know, who I believe in. I'll send their script, you know, to my agent or my manager. Um, And there are agencies and managers who will take unsolicited material. So you, you know, you just, there's a listing somewhere. It may be on the WGA website, the Writers Guild of America. There's yeah. a website. So you you might be able to go there and find um, agents who will take unsolicited material. So that's how you promote it. As for a specific screenplay and stuff like that, yeah, I, I use my agent and my manager. It's up to them to get it out to the right buyers. All right, perfect. Speaking of the Screenwriters Guild, though, uh, I heard you mention that in there. Like, uh, Okay, so they will take some non-solicited stuff. That means like non-union uh, writers, like put that out there, right? But how do you get into, say, the Screenwriters Guild? And again, it's changed. And my my answer is based on what I know from from some of the newer writers that I've worked with. Um, to do it, you have to get a paying union job. So, and there's a minimum amount of money that you have to make. But the amount of money on a two hour movie was enough such that my you know former assistant and writing partner on Princess Switch, Megan Metzger, she was able to get in the union. And then Marlise Boland, who I wrote um, a script based on Jane Austen, which I just love and we really hope gets set up somewhere soon, she, um, she too was able to join the guild based on that fee. So it's a dollar amount, and I don't know what it is, but you have to make a certain floor and then you, uh, in a union job. But you brought up non-union, Aaron, and, and there are non there is non-union work out there. I never worked non-union, so um, I can't really speak to it. I know Hallmark has sometimes bought non-union scripts um, or Canadian, you know, Canadian scripts um, and uh, some of the other smaller uh, outlets do. Okay. All right, cool. So now you've been doing this for for a couple years we'll say like wrote wrote on a bunch of shows (laughs) you've built quite the resume for yourself what would be say a highlight or two that you would uh care to share Mm. well i think the highlight of as a writer producer is when people come up to you and they've seen your show and they it's touched them in some way you know it's hard to quantify that you know, why do we do what we do? And it's why we have agents, too, as, as creative people, is because we would do it for free, because it's so joyful for us to put the words down on paper and such a thrill then to see them shown. And then I guess the highlight is when you really have affected someone. And um, I was lucky enough to, you know, I've, I've had people write me letters. I've done shows like Quantum Leap or When Calls the Heart where actually they have conventions for the fans and I've had people come up and tell me how the stories have touched them. And I don't think it gets better than that. It really, it doesn't, it takes your breath away, you know, to, to know that you're having an impact on people 
all around the country and around the world. I, I think that's pretty much a highlight. That is a great feeling, though, when somebody comes up to you and appreciates your work. It, help, it happens in like radio, which where is where I got my start, podcasting and stuff like that. When your work has like touched somebody and enough for them to say something to you about it, that's very rewarding. So I agree that that's a huge highlight right there. Yeah. What is a major obstacle that you've had to overcome to get to where you are? Well, again, I'm a dinosaur. Things are changing. But you know what? When you look around, they haven't changed so much. But the it's it's sad. But the major obstacle, certainly at the beginning, was being a woman in a field that was dominated by men. I mean, I, I went out on an interview where someone asked me if I had a child. And I said, yes. And she's in kindergarten. And he said, um, you know, how can you go to, how are you going to deal with, with the guilt, you know, if you leave your child to work? I mean, just, and, and wow. I know women face this, you know, in, in a lot of fields, but it was, it was in my face at that point. And it was tough to, to prove that I could be one of the boys. And again, so different from the Me Too movement now and, you know, Time's Up and stuff, you had to roll with the punches. It wasn't, you weren't going to be included if you couldn't be one of the boys. So I had to be. Honestly, I wasn't that offended. But by when I think of the standards, when I think of what was said in those rooms in those <laughs> days, oh, holy cow, people would be sent to sensitivity training every day. I'm and, sure. Yeah. So, the, so there were challenges. You know, I remember once, I won't say what show it was, when the all-male staff turned to me and said, what was it like to give birth? <laughs> it's so bizarre. <laughs> you know, so, and then there was the male staff that had hired a, a, a stripper as their intern. I, you know, again, I won't say what show, but I've, I've seen it all. I've heard it all. I was part of that, you know, that culture and having to survive that. And, and uh, so that was definitely a challenge. The other challenge that exists now and has existed for the last like 20 years is ageism in my business. If you're over 30, you're over the hill. It's just nutty. And so I am so blessed that people have recognized that I still have talent and I have more experience and talent. But, ooh, Hollywood is a very ageist place. And there was a actually a lawsuit um, that the Writers Guild, there was a class action suit that was brought against the studios. And the writers, there was a settlement that writers got paid for being discriminated against oh, wow. because of age. So they even do the ageism for writing, too, huh? That's interesting. Oh, yeah. I know. It's so absurd. But they do. They, they cast writers. Um, and to be fair, I've probably benefited some of the time from being cast as a woman writer. You know, um, where they were specifically looking, I was the token woman, but I like to think that I wouldn't have been hired again or been asked to stay if I wasn't cutting it. But, yeah. um, yeah, when I, I started out, uh, an executive producer and a supervising producer said to me, well, you know, you'll never get to run a show. I mean, the highest you'll probably get is supervising producer. So it's really kind of, again, satisfying to say I, I lived to break that glass ceiling. You know, I ran When Calls the Heart for three years and was executive producer, and now I executive produce the movies I'm on. So, 
it's the story has a happy ending, which is nice. That's awesome, and it's got to make you feel all good inside, like proving everybody wrong. You know, like all the people that said you couldn't do it are like, um, can like the whole can women write thing and all that, and to go out and do that and come out where you are right now. That's got to be one awesome feeling. Well, I think you know what the other part of that 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 shouldn't be discounted is the feeling of because I did that, other women now can't do it. You know what I mean? There's a there's a big satisfaction to say I I was a pioneer doing it, and now other women can do it because of what I did, and therefore I'm part of making you know in my small tiny way, not curing cancer, but making the world a better place. In, in that struggle we have for equality. And may I just say, to get on my soapbox, which I don't know if you're allowed to have in a podcast. <laughs> please do. Please do. <laughs> but it, it really, the disparity in pay still really exists. That's, that's real. It's out there. I know it. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that we still have to work on, you know. So the battle isn't done or the work isn't done. I, I shouldn't even yeah. make it antagonistic. It should. It's just what needs to be done. But it's it's not to be taken for granted. It, there's still work to be done. Yeah, and you know, up until that last point where the the pay discrepancy, I was like going to be like, oh, it sounds very Hallmark esque, and then the pay discrepancy came in, and it's like, okay, that kind of <laughs> took took the shiny Hallmark <laughs> polish off of that story. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's true. Well, it needs it to be we, out there. We, yeah, we do live in the real world. You know, we do. I, I think all in all for me, I again, yeah, there's more work to be done. I'm just very, very lucky and happy and blessed that I got a seat at the table. I mean, it's there weren't many women who did, and so I'm so grateful for it. It was what I was meant to do, you know, and I got to do it. Awesome, awesome. And hopefully I can still do it. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to say that like, okay, and now it's all over. No, no. No, no. no. Well, it seems uh, like you're doing a good job because, uh, and, and you still got things coming in because you mentioned, well, as we talked about uh, the Princess Switch and you mentioned a couple more things you have on Netflix now. Um, yeah, well, we're developing some other stories again in the high concept categories and, and romance. And so uh, there seems to be a demand for that. There was an article in the LA Times down here uh, just over the weekend about the return of rom coms, you know, like with Crazy Rich Asians, which is yeah. a big hit. And I love that movie. And so <laughs> I'm hoping that'll, you know, continue to make the, make it so that we can write material like that that's uplifting and fun and just entertaining very good very true that's that is you know i forgot where i was going to go with that as i tripped over my tongue but uh <laughs> <laughs> well we do we do call it we do call it the entertainment business Aaron. you know and there's plenty that is you know, really moving and touching and, and makes you think, um, you know, I saw the two movies on addiction this year, uh, Ben is back and beautiful boy. And they're huh. just like gut wrenching. I mean, they're good movies, but they're gut wrenching. So I don't deal in, in the gut wrenching stuff. I deal in the stuff that after you, you watch it, you know, hopefully you, you know, you feel 
just a little happier for it and just a little bit lifted out of everyday worries. It is nice to be able to escape every once in a while, you know, and uh, sitting down. There you go. Escaping for two hours watching a movie. That's always nice right there. So, okay, this one is a good question for you. Uh, this is one of my one of my typical five questions. But when somebody sits down and watches a show or a movie that you wrote or produced, what is it that you want them to take away and feel or remember about that experience? Well, again, based on, on what we were just talking about, I mean in my particular case and what I'm doing right now is people taking away a sense of feeling good and happy. And I've had a lot of people say that about the stuff I've been doing lately that in a world that is very complicated and where there's a lot of contention, when you watch one of the movies that I've written lately, I think you come away with a feeling of happiness and that everything's okay and it's lifted you out of your problems for the day. And the stuff I did with Jim Brolin was was very family-based. It was about family and relationships between fathers and daughters. And it just reinforces some of those those basic feel-good things about life that, you know, maybe we don't give enough thought to. Okay, I can deal with that. That's a good feeling to take away, you know. Also, I could see like a nostalgia slash fantasy slash warm fuzzy feeling that like when when I see some of your work. Yeah, I definitely think we're into the warm fuzzies. Network uh, Netflix actually has a category that they call the feels. Okay, and I, I'd say we. The work that I'm doing definitely falls into the feels, and it makes you feel good, and it makes you feel happy, and at the end of the day, what's so bad about that? Exactly, exactly. All right, I have one more question before I get to my final question, just because, like, (laughs) I've been, actually, I was handed a question by Angela, my girlfriend, who, she wants to know, how do you pitch your stories, like, say, to Netflix or whatever? How does that pitch go? down like especially nowadays now that you don't have to deal with like as much of what you dealt with when you started you know it it's for me or just in general it depends um there are people that like bring in the whole as we used to say dog and pony show and they come in with visual aids and they come in with photos and sizzle reels and stuff like that and i don't i just come in and tell the story i i have an idea and I've run it by my agent and my manager, and so then I flesh it out and I try to tell the best story that I can. Okay. Um, that's usually the premise and then the characters, and it usually runs about 15 minutes, and then we sort of bat around, you know, they have questions, the people from the studios or the networks have questions, and you bat it around, and and then you leave and they say, well, we'll get back to you, and then you hear whether they like it or not. But it's one of those processes, Aaron, where, and it's always funny because I I always get mad at my agent when meetings cancel. And it's like, why are you mad? So they moved it. They don't (laughs) understand. You're preparing like a 15-minute monologue and you memorize it. And you, at least for me, I, you know, on the drive over, 
I'm talking to myself, which now doesn't look so strange because people think you're on the phone in the car. But before <laughs> there were car phones, they just thought you were a crazy person. But, you know, I run it in my head and I get it all down. And, and then basically you, you're a little bit of an actor when you have to get in front of these, these buyers. And that's how we do it. It's, it's, um, it's a lucky day when, you know, you're so well known that you don't have to do it. And they just call up and say, you know, get me this person doesn't happen. It hasn't happened that much to me. Let's say I've, I've had to sing for my supper. It's all right though. It makes you appreciate it more. At least that's what they say, right? When you have to sing for your supper. Yeah, we always say that. Well, it's better for us. You know, it keeps us on our toes. But it'd be nice just to get it handed to you. <laughs> well, of course. Of course. And, and you know, you, you go into it. I go into it dreading it and hating it and rehearsing it in the shower and dreading doing it. And then when, when I'm in it and it's happening, I actually enjoy it a little bit. So there you go. The worst is the anticipation, like going back to your going to the doctor's office. The worst mm-hmm. thing is the anticipation of going, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, that that is true. And the worst thing about giving a speech in front of the class is the anticipation of it uh, and all that good stuff. So, uh, but yeah. eventually some people like me, sometimes the anticipation of it is actually kind of a buzz like I've done I haven't done stand-up for a while but before I got up on stage it was like that anticipation that like antsiness and get up there kind of turned into like a natural high in a way yeah and you you feed off yeah you feed off your audience too you know all you need is a little feedback and then you're you know you're on a roll I do know some famous people allegedly like read their their pitches like Chris Carter who created x-files at least as the legend goes he actually reads his pitches and i don't i mean i i memorize what i have so again it's that terror that you're going to forget what comes next which i don't know if you have that when you did stand up you know do you do you wonder whether you know are you going to forget your next bit or your next joke occasionally like what i what i do sometimes is just drop like bullet like not necessarily a set list but just a bullet point on the ground like um so it'd be like okay i can go to that joke that joke that joke but i didn't like have the jokes written out at all you know just a quick reminder Uh that might have said something about like grocery stores or something like that and it just let me know okay that bit that's what i wanted to do yeah i do i do bullet points too because you don't really want to memorize every word of it but see if you're up there doing stand-up well, you get interrupted a little bit, but when I'm in a room, it's more conversational. So that's sometimes the thing that trips you up is somebody's like excited. And so they have a question and it takes you off track and then you have to go, oh, I've got to get back. Where was I on those bullet points? So, yeah, it's, exactly. it is a bit of that nervous performing. I know how that goes as well with uh, interviewing and stuff. So. Robin, I have had a blast talking to you today. It's been uh, super, super fun talking about MacGyver, talking talking about Quantum Leap and all those shows, and uh, to hear what you have going on and the advice that you have was awesome. Uh, but I have that one final question for you. It is the title question of the show. Robin Bernheim, how do you live uncontained? I try to live fearlessly don't always succeed but it's a matter of you have to to face your insecurities and you have to overcome them as, as best you can and 
that I think is is one of the hardest things to do, and I don't think that I do it all the time. But I think trying to live fearlessly, not listening to when people say you can't, you have to figure out how you can, and you have to always figure out how to be better, a better version of yourself. Perfect. That's awesome right there. Um, getting over that fear and figuring out what you need to do to get better. Where can people find you on the social medias or the World Wide Web? Um, it's, I don't have too much social media, but I am on Twitter occasionally. And it's, um, my handle is at showrunner Robin. Okay. At showrunner Robin. All right. We will put that in the show notes here. Just so if you do want to get a hold of her, tell her that you loved Quantum Leap or Princess Switch. I'm sure she'd love to hear that you appreciate her work. So, um, I have one final thing for you to do, Robin. And that is sign off the show. Will you do me the honor of signing off the show tonight? I will try to do you the honor, Aaron. And it was so lovely to talk to you. And best of luck to you. Thank you. um, I listened to some of the other podcasts and they were really enjoyable. So for tonight, I'm Robin Bernheim and I live uncontained. And that does it for another episode of Uncontained. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Robin for joining me and sharing some great stories. And also thank you to my girlfriend, Angela, for setting this up and uh, making this all happen and all the little things she does behind the scenes to uh, help make sure this show is a little bit better. But anyways, please share this show. Please take the time to swing by iTunes or your favorite podcast player and leave a review. It will help people find this show and uh, help it grow. And there is no advertising like the word of mouth, so please tell a friend and uh, share this episode. And don't forget, Robin has an upcoming series on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries called Mystery 101 that she co-wrote with New York Times best-selling author Lee Goldberg. And, of course, there's The Princess Switch, which was the number one holiday movie of the season on Netflix. And if you want to know what it's about, in Robin's own words, think Prince and the Pauper with a female lead. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, live uncontained.